0: Hello, I'm Kate Chabot and welcome to SITREP, where each week we analyse the key defence and security issues shaping the UK and the world. This week, what is the future for UK defence following the government's integrated review?
1: There will be massive investment in, in our land forces and particularly in, uh, in cyber forces, and we are taking the tough decisions needed.
0: We'll debate the issues raised. We joined the Royal Marines on marksmanship chaining.
2: Night combat can provide a tactical advantage over the enemy, but it requires careful planning and preparation. It's why these commandos start with the basics
0: under cover
3: of darkness.
0: And we ask how COVID has affected working life in the military.
3: Actually, I think through the COVID pandemic, people have realised that they can flexibly work from home, so may not need to necessarily reduce their hours if they're able to work more flexibly.
0: It's been billed as the biggest shake-up in the UK's defence, security and foreign policy since the end of the Cold War. Earlier this week, Boris Johnson set out how the government intends to protect the country's interests post-Brexit.
1: There will be massive investment in, in our land forces and particularly in, uh, in cyber forces. And we are taking the tough decisions needed to modernize and improve our armed forces. And yes, it's expensive. Yes, it's expensive. It requires 24 billion uh, pounds to do it, but it means taking historic and difficult decisions now. And that's what we're doing.
0: The integrated review of foreign policy and defense runs to over 100 pages and acknowledges the risks posed by increased competition between states, including the rise of China as a global force.
1: There is no question that China will pose a great challenge an open society such as ours. But we will also work with China, where that is consistent with our values and interests, including building a stronger and positive economic relationship and in addressing climate change.
0: The document says Britain will start to form new alliances with countries in the Indo-Pacific region and warned that Russia is the most acute threat to UK security. It sets out how the UK will reverse plans to reduce its stockpile of nuclear weapons by the middle of the decade, potentially increasing warheads from 180 to 260. Further details for defence will be revealed next week. The Prime Minister said there'll be no redundancies in the armed forces, but Labour leader Sakir Starmer accused the government of presiding over cuts to the military over the last
4: ten years. The British Army is already 6,000 below the minimal level set out in the last review. It's been cut every year for the last decade. And it's being reported, Mr Speaker, that the army will see a further reduction of 10,000 alongside fewer tanks, fewer jets for the RAF and fewer frigates for the Royal Navy.
0: Last autumn, there was a new settlement of an additional £16.5 billion of defence funding over the next four years. But this week, MPs on the Public Accounts Committee said that cuts will still be needed somewhere because of a black hole in the budget for equipment the MOD was already planning to buy. Well, a short while ago, I spoke to the Conservative MP, Tom Tugendhat, who is the chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee. I asked him if the Prime Minister got it right on China.
5: Well, the Prime Minister actually set out some pretty hard language on China that is slightly veiled but it's worth exposing. The comments about human rights are quite clearly a criticism of what's going on in Xinjiang and Hong Kong and the comments about the strategic challenge are about the fact that China is trying to rewrite the rules that have kept us all, broadly speaking, peaceful and prosperous for about 70 years. So I think it's pretty harsh on China actually and I think it could go further but I think it's pretty clear where Britain stands.
0: So he did get the balance right, do you think?
5: Well, uh, let's see what he delivers, because uh, at the moment these are words. Uh, What I need to see now is actions.
0: Mm. The Integrated Review talks about a tilt towards the Indo-Pacific, but as we've seen from Secretary Blinken and Austin's tour to Japan, South Korea and on to India this week, the Americans are already very much there. What could Britain gain?
5: Well, the Americans have been there for a long time, don't forget. They've had 50,000 troops in South Korea for many, many years. They've had a fleet based in Okinawa in Japan for many years. And they've had uh, defense partnerships uh, around the Philippines and Taiwan for many years. So, you know, if we're going to have a tilt to the Pacific, it can't just be uh, a sail past uh, of the Queen Elizabeth or the odd trip by a frigate. It's got to be an enduring presence. Anything less will be symbolic. And this isn't a time for showmanship, this is a time for actual commitment to our partners and allies in the rules-based system.
0: So do you think the sending of the aircraft carrier to the region is showmanship at the moment?
5: I don't know, because I don't know how long it's going to persist. I don't know what it's going to be doing there. Uh, What I'm saying is that it's not good enough just to have it go out and come back. What we need is we need to have a permanent presence anything less, anything less than persistence, will be seen as showmanship.
0: You wrote in The Times this week, the vision set out is bold, but it's not cheap, and the next page will be written by the Treasury, leaving the last question. What will Rishi pay for? Are you worried?
5: Well, I think everybody who's been involved in defence for the last 40 years has been concerned about budgets. This is this is not a new concern. And the government has committed to 24 billion over uh, four years, but let's face it, that money gets swallowed up very, very quickly in programs that have been delayed by COVID, like our three uh, submarines and various other different elements where there's been a huge overspend in the defence budget over many years. So, you know, this isn't just about that amount of money. If you are going to maintain permanent presence east of Suez, as the line goes, you need to have basing, you need to have troops to task, you need to have shipbuilding and resupply capabilities Uh, way, way beyond the areas that they are now. And that isn't cheap and it doesn't come under this budget.
0: That was a conservative MP, Tom Tugendhat there. Well, we're joined now by the Chief of the Defence Staff from 2010 to 2013, Lord Richards. Now a crossbench peer, the Director of the Institute for Government, Bronwyn Maddox, and Professor Michael Clark, former Director of the Defence Think Tank, Rusi. Thank you to you all for joining us today. Let's start with China. Uh, We've heard from Tom Tugendhat there, Bronwyn Maddox. Boris Johnson said those who call for a Cold War on China are mistaken. How difficult will it be for the UK to walk a tightrope with China with recent events in Hong Kong and Xinjiang? It's going to be extremely difficult.
6: You did put some tough words there, as Tom Tookenhab was saying, but the question is what happens when Britain also wants to make trade deals with China? As he also made clear it does. And I think you, you know you've got a, a strategy of balance there, if you like, which is a very difficult thing. The minute we start doing trade deals or the minute China does something that we find really very hard to accommodate, what do we do? So I don't think this gives you a, a roadmap, if you like, for what British, British actions are going to be. and the, you know the trade is, is the
0: central bit that's going to throw up questions. Lord Richards, how will the armed forces contribute to this so-called tilt to the Indo-Pacific region?
7: Well, first of all, I'd like to agree with what Bronwyn said. At risk of sounding critical, of course, we haven't got a strategy, and that actually uh, is the point she's making. We've got uh, policy goals, but we have no clear plan on how we're to deliver it. Uh, My own view is um, Tom Tugendhat, well-schooled, he worked for me, uh, has sort of summed it up quite well, and the idea of our carrier going uh, over to that part of the world later this year as a one-off, I think, is pretty poor. I'm not necessarily saying it's showmanship. I can see that there would be some short-term benefits. But my concern uh, is that we are uh, risk penny-packeting our forces all around the globe, uh, actually achieving very little real strategic influence in any particular place. And it actually could risk aggravating China. Uh, By the way, militarily, it's quite a risky venture, given uh, the weapon systems they deploy. I would rather see uh, a focus closer to home in terms of our own deployments freeing up American forces to collectively, on our collective behalf, uh, to contain and deter uh, China.
0: Mm, Michael Clark, from what you heard this week, what are the implications of the strategy for the Defence Command paper that we expect next week?
4: Well, I think most of the attention will probably go on the the Navy, because that's the the service that looks as if it's got more of a, a global role, if we're going to play some sort of more global role. The strategy next week will show that there's an intention to increase the size of the Navy. There are uh, only eight new classes of ships being built if you take the frigates and the um, submarines and the support ships. Uh, I think what that probably means is, leave aside the carrier going on this global tour, it probably means a, a, a warship uh, stationed uh, somewhere around the Indo-Pacific to create help create partnerships I think it's going to have some implications for the Marines. My understanding is that the at least one task group of Marines will be based in the Gulf at a port. I'm not going to say which one it is, but it's it's going to be announced, I think, on Monday. Um, and I think there will be uh, a, some sort of creation of of hubs um, of support staff, possibly in Singapore, possibly Brunei. But as Lord Richard says, I mean, what they're there to do other than to... To, to be visible will be a matter of strategy and and the danger is of course that we are visible in lots of p- parts of the world um, but that, that being visible is not the same as being strategically relevant and that's the, the challenge which the government is going to have to meet and we'll see a bit more of that when we see the, the document itself on Monday.
0: Well let's move on to nuclear weapons now and the decision to increase the stockpile prompted condemnation from some MPs but the Foreign Secretary said nuclear warheads represented the ultimate insurance policy against global threats. Um, Michael, how big a change do you think that is?
4: Uh, it's quite big. This was not leaked beforehand. This is something that came out only in the briefings around the document itself. It was a bit of a secret before that to most of the rest of the community. And it is a potentially very big change because the increase in the number of warheads is, is not just about keeping the stockpile um, up to date. It's about trying to extend deterrence into other areas where it might have more utility. And potentially the document says that you know we might threaten them in as de- as deterrent against the use of other weapons of mass destruction or some technological advances that we can't now foresee and of course everyone has interpreted that to mean cyber attack. The problem with it is that the, when the dust settles after army cuts and everything else has been discussed, this one will come back on the government because there'll be a lot of criticism that it breaches the non-proliferation treaty and they'll have to defend themselves against that. And it also depends on the american um, warhead development we, we're going to use the the w93 the mark 7 w93 which has been developed in the united states but the us isn't certain to develop this new warhead yet and the atomic weapons establishment which has been brought back under mod control can't produce these extra weapons so it's not going to happen overnight indeed we may we may find it takes years to get up to our 260 projected warheads. So I think what the government has decided is to kind of slip this one in uh, now, take the take the uh, criticisms that will occur in the next couple of months internationally and nationally. Um, and then see where that leaves them in terms of being able to use the British deterrent a bit more flexibly in the grey area conflicts of the future. But it's a big potential change.
0: Yeah, and in that potential use, Bronwyn Maddox, the review raised the prospect, as Michael was alluding to, of a nuclear response to catastrophic chemical, biological, even cyber threats. How will that news go down in Moscow and other capitals? I think with some scepticism.
6: Um, the intention
0: is clearly to
6: make threatening countries feel threatened by this, but I would be surprised if they did entirely, because it's very much a mixed signal that is coming out here this surprise announcement, which it was, um, of uh, potentially much more, uh, many more nuclear warheads, uh, but mixed in with, which we're coming on to, cuts in conventional forces and, in a, in a sense, in diplomacy around the world. And how actually is this going to, is is Britain going to use these? So this this announcement has has simply, to me, raised an awful lot of questions. As Michael was saying, how do we get to that capacity if, if we wanted? But actually, how would we... Deploy it? Um, do more warheads give you uh, more deterrence? That's an old question. And what circumstances exactly might you use them? And then it does reverse the image that Britain has been choosing for itself for many decades of being the most progressive of the nuclear powers to reduce uh, the number of warheads. It doesn't answer well questions about what it's going to do in the Middle East. Uh, one of the big um,
7: uh, silences in this uh, review to me.
0: And Lord Richards, do, do you support this change in policy?
7: I'm slightly baffled by it uh, as Michael said uh, took most of us by surprise it needs a major and proper debate because there's no doubt that we are now for the first time speculating about the United Kingdom using nuclear weapons at, routinely as part of conflict uh, as opposed to a absolute last resort. So it's a significant difference and needs to be properly debated and understood.
0: Mm. Now let's move on now to conventional forces and we'll have more details next week. But the Prime Minister told MPs that the combined strength of the army, including reservists, will remain above 100,000. But the tough decisions are required. Lord Richards, you were in charge during the 2010 review. You had to oversee big cuts. What 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 do you think will happen next week? What would your advice be to the Prime Minister?
7: Well, first of all, um, yes, I was CGS uh, then as opposed to the CDS. I inherited the the overall lot just after the review. It's quite interesting that General Carter's being kept on, I think, wisely, I I understand, until the end of the year, so he can get on with executing the review, which I hope he's played a major part in. Uh, What I, I think I'd say is that, you know the chiefs having been through this uh, are dealt a very difficult hand uh, they've got to uh, increase the amount of money and our capabilities in the sort of more tech areas cyber uh, uh, ai drones all that sort of stuff and and keep a, uh, a, a conventional Force going at the same time, because we, we can't just go in one day from the industrial era to the information era. So we have to keep or try to keep a balance. And what I think uh, they found is they just haven't got the money, uh, despite very, a very welcome injection. I hate to think what position we'd be in, by the way, if the Prime Minister hadn't uh, forced through, as I understand it, this additional money. So good for him. But nevertheless, uh, there is a, a, a real shortage of money to do everything that uh, the arm, the chiefs and the armed forces know they've got to do. So they've they've kept a little bit of everything uh, in an attempt to keep these skills alive. I'm afraid uh, there are all sorts of implications for that, but it will mean that an army of around seventy-two thousand—and it's too clever to talk about reservists in that way. By the way, is just too small. I agreed an army of ninety-four when I was CGS. I came back as CDS a little later and found it had gone. On down to eighty-four, it just isn't enough to achieve the goals. Going back to the strategy, which is still uh, unclear, that to, to achieve the goals in the paper we've just seen. Mm,
0: Broman Maddox, investments in cyber space, combating disinformation. How much of future conflict will be in the so-called grey zone between war and peace?
6: Potentially quite a bit, but the, again, the amounts of money look comparatively small to what other countries have been spending and comparatively late. Many were putting this in five or so years ago. So I share David Richards' concern about the money spread all over the place, if if you like, and then coming back to the conventional forces and to my point about the Middle East. Um, the, the UK clearly in this review is trying to get itself out of the Middle East, uh, as is the US. And it talks about dealing with the Middle East on science and trade and all these kind of things. It's funny how the Middle East keeps uh, dragging people back in and uh, it may well be an arena
4: in which we need
0: conventional forces. Uh, and Michael Clark how different do you think the British Armed Forces will look in 2030?
4: Uh, I think it's different for all three of the main forces. I mean, the RAF will look pretty well as it does now in 2030 with the addition they hope of the new tempest program which is robotic aircraft as well as manned aircraft but the rf is pretty well ready to go now i think the royal navy needs a bit of time yet to get to this bigger sustainable fleet um, which it, it aims to do in the late 20s the army's got far and away the furthest to go in terms of transformation because the army's trying to adjust to a completely new ground battle space where you might imagine that wherever the battle space is and whatever it is about there'll be surprisingly few people apparently in it because the the conflict will be going on behind the scenes in cyberspace in different ways and then as always in battles one side breaks or cracks and suddenly a lot of people will suddenly appear and, and and sweep across an otherwise relatively deserted landscape from a military point of view that's a completely new conception of of land battle and the army's got to transform itself to that in pretty short order. That's a big, big task.
0: Professor Michael Clark, Bronwyn Maddox and Lord Richard, thank you so much for your time today. News, discussions and analysis. This is Zitwet. Royal Marines from Forty Commando who make up the newly formed Vanguard Strike Company have been carrying out essential marksmanship training in Warminster. The Royal Marines have been evolving as part of future commando force to form more agile and lethal strike companies and to integrate new technology. But it all begins with basic commando training, as Bryony Williams reports. It's dark, near
2: pitch black, apart from the gentle glow of light sticks used as markers. Night combat can provide a tactical advantage over the enemy, but it requires careful planning and preparation. It's why these commandos start with the basics under cover of darkness, as this Royal Marine from 40 Commando explains.
8: Firing a rifle at night obviously, um, completely different to firing it during the day. With the targets at night, obviously you can't see them, um, so you'd have to use the um, laser light module to uh, laser the target through an IR um, infrared laser beam that you can see through your uh, night vision goggle uh, and that aligns you onto the target um, so that you can fire at night and identify the target.
2: He didn't want to be identified but you'll hear him describe some of the training that's taking place. Well, it's been raining on and off all day. It's cold, it's dark. The Marines have got their night vision goggles on to allow them to shoot at night. They're starting off from 100 metres from the target and they're moving closer to 15 metres from the target.
1: Okay, now we're seeing five eight-second exposures. to the target to fire one round, target forward here, watch and shoot.
2: The commandos have to pass a series of tests on these ranges in the day and night to move on to live fire tactical training in a more realistic battle scenario. We'll
8: be transitioning into uh, movement phase where we'll be firing on the move um, as teams and in the, from sort of uh, team level up to like a dozen or so men. Um, and to have that training at night at this level prepares you to be able to do that on the move um, at night and uh, as commando forces we use primarily the night time as our assault hours and to attack during the night.
2: Working in groups of 12 rather than traditional sections of 8, day or night, is a future commando force concept. These marines from 40 commando will form part of Vanguard Strike Company leading and informing how Royal marines and army commandos will operate. (laughs) But everything is built on these commando foundations, which is why this training is absolutely necessary.
8: Starting back at the basics basics is essential so that everybody's swept up and at the same level. Um, This is quite a basic package for now, um, but as we transition closer uh, through the year we'll be developing more uh, tactics at a larger level um, to display the vanguard capabilities of the future commander force.
2: Vanguard Strike Company will be deployed persistently forward as part of the newly formed littoral response groups. They'll be held at very high readiness for various operations from crisis assistance to immediate offensive action.
0: Bryony Williams reporting. It's exactly a year ago that the Defence Secretary announced the creation of a 20,000-strong COVID response force to support the fight against COVID-19. Over the last 12 months, we've seen military personnel involved in everything from distributing PPE to running testing stations. On top of that response, the pandemic has changed training, recruitment and day-to-day life for many thousands of people in the armed forces. Earlier, I spoke to Helen Helliwell, Director, Armed Forces People Policy. She's speaking about the impacts of COVID-19 on families at a Veterans Mental Health Conference organised by King's College London. I started by asking her how she thought the pandemic had affected the working lives of military personnel overall. So
3: I think it's probably been really different depending on your circumstances uh, and how you've had to adapt, and whether you've got caring and responsibilities and where where you're living, etc. So I think it's been a real mixture of experiences for people.
0: And what have been the hardest challenges and problems?
3: Um, and and again, I think it really depends on your circumstances. Um, but I think for those that were used to working in an office, it's. Um, not now working in an office and working from home and perhaps the additional challenges that that's brought, particularly for those with caring responsibilities. But then I think also those who aren't office-based but weren't able to do their original roles, a kind of sense of frustration that they're not able to do the job that they they were doing because, you know, to start with, some things just weren't allowed allowed to happen. So a huge period of adaptation, I think, for people.
0: And financially, uh, what impact has the pandemic had on military families?
3: Again, I think it, it will be different for different people, um, but I know that we've put out quite a lot of s- sort of support and advice about where to go and get uh, financial help, and it will depend on people's employment scenarios, of course, whether people have been furloughed or whether they've lost their jobs through the pandemic, as we know that many have, but thankfully, at least being in the armed forces, there's, there's one income coming in, um, mm-hmm. but of course it's really challenging if you're used to dual income, and that. You know, and that's stopped as part of COVID.
0: Now, of course, you're speaking at a virtual conference this week at King's College on how the pandemic has affected families and the mental health of veterans as well. But you're focusing mainly on families. What's your experience? What have you seen?
3: Again, the families have uh, proved to be incredibly resilient um, and a real enabler for armed forces personnel to deliver their core roles. I think it's been Different and interesting this time because often um, perhaps they, the armed forces member is married to a key worker. Um, so it's been really important to ensure that the key workers are uh, prioritised in going out to work. So, some real interesting discussions, I think, between whether the armed forces person was doing a key worker role or whether, you know, if they were married to a doctor or a nurse or a teacher, um, and particularly when there was no childcare or schools were shut. Um, who needed to stay at home and take on these caring responsibilities at a time when perhaps our wider family and support networks weren't available to us?
0: I mean, in that context, do you find that military families have been more resilient or, or actually more affected by the pandemic? Because traditionally you might you might think that military families are particularly resilient because the way they have to accommodate operations and military life. What what do you think the experience is?
3: They're having to get used to being um, very self sufficient when perhaps a, a serving partner is away it means that there are, there is a lot of resilience there and a lot of self sufficiency. Perhaps more difficult this time when childcare settings were closed or when the wider network of families and friends that you normally rely on, particularly in the military community, isn't available. But yeah, I do think that um, people's experiences have used having to be so self-sufficient has probably put in really good stead in in helping with this particular pandemic.
0: What has or or can the Ministry of Defence do uh, to help in this time? What more can they do?
3: Obviously, we've adapted a lot of our policies and processes and allowances to be as flexible as we can, um, allowing people to take um, compassionate leave, for example, if they're not able to come into work because of caring responsibilities. We've been particularly conscious about our serving contingent who are overseas and the impact of um, travel restrictions Restrictions, corridors, um, isolation periods, etc. So, been working hand in glove with the Foreign Office um, on on ensuring that our people have as much support as they can working overseas. Um, thinking about children in boarding schools, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, a lot of work has been done on that, and I think we continue to review our policies the longer as we as we learn to live with covid and as other countries adapt and perhaps mm-hmm. have different kind of entry exit requirements etc
0: and what about veterans is there anything more that can be done to support them at this time
3: we know in particular that the charity sector has been really hit through covid and not being able to do their usual fundraising so we were able to target an additional six million pounds last year to service charities specifically helping armed forces community and veterans um, and again the veterans have obviously shown a huge uh, resilience themselves. And it's been really fantastic to see all the stories of volunteering that they've been doing in their local community or through some of the more um, organised ways of volunteering to help through the pandemic.
0: And lots of employers are saying lessons have been learned about ways of working. What do you think the Ministry of Defence has learnt?
3: So I think we've had a huge leap forward in being technologically enabled to work from home. So we didn't previously used to have all have laptops, and I know not everybody has laptops now, but certainly a huge proportion of the office-based workforce does have laptops to enable us to work from home. I think it's really shown that flexible working works. I was just thinking just last week, we uh, I hosted a call with the PermSec and with Chief of Defence Staff. We had 4,000 people on that call who were asked, able to ask Q&A um, and hear from the PermSec and CDS. And normally they would do that in the main conference suite, which only seats 200 people. So I think now we're able to get out to a lot more people um, because we're doing it all remotely. But also people are having um, sometimes, you know, a better work life balance i know that's not the same for everybody and it was and it's very different working from home when you've got homeschooling and childcare. but now the children are back at school and childcare settings are open it's a different experience working from home and i think we've all got to know each other a little bit better we've all got to know our family situations a little bit better so i think we've come closer together as a community you know that we um Introduced flexible service only in 2019 from the armed forces but actually I think through the Covid pandemic people have realised that they can flexibly work from home so may not need to necessarily reduce their hours if they're able to work more flexibly.
0: So are we talking about changes that may stay and if so which changes will stay do you think?
3: So I definitely think the Flexible working will stay and the working from home will stay. Um, we already know that that's what uh, a lot of the workforce want. So we've talked before about whether people just come into the office for perhaps two or three days a week um, rather than everybody being in five days a week. Um, and that's kind of been worked through at the moment through our future workforce programme.
0: Helen Helliwell, Director, Armed Forces, People Policy, speaking to me earlier. And that's it from me, Kate Chabot, and all of our guests. Don't forget, you can always get in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS Sitrep. And while you're online, why not subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode in future at bfbs.com slash sitrep. For now, though, thanks for listening. Bye-bye.